0: Hello and welcome to The Crit, the design podcast that gathers all the breaking news happening in design and then largely does nothing with it until the end of the month. My name is Ollie Stratford, I'm one of your hosts and I'm delighted to say we have a new host starting with us, Desenio's Deputy Editor, India Block.
1: Hi Ollie, very excited to make my debut on The Crit.
0: Very nice to have you here. What do you think you're going to bring to The Crit?
1: my sparkling wit and insight, obviously.
0: (laughs) Fresh ideas, new approaches. We should also say thank you to Johanna Argaman ross Desenio's director, for standing in the last few months. Uh, There was discussion about retaining Johanna's services, but unfortunately her contract demands were totally unreasonable. The rider she was asking for I mean, I don't don't know if France even produces that much champagne, let alone getting it to the UK in time. And just nobody needs that many jade rollers. So unfortunately, Johanna will not be with us this week, but we thank her for her service.
1: Yeah, I'm the much cheaper alternative. I can just be paid in beer.
0: (laughs) Cheap is a very good quality. Cheap is an underappreciated quality in a host. Well, we have a lot of stories to get through. August is traditionally quite a quiet month in design, but this year there seems to have been a lot that's happened. So uh, let's get on with it.
1: In California, we have the news that a judge has actually found Proposition 22 unconstitutional. Proposition
0: 22 is the status of gig economy workers, right? Whether they're Full-time employees or independent contractors.
1: Exactly. So in 2019, legislators in California passed a law that essentially said all of these companies that were running off the gig economy needed to actually employ their workers. And these companies responded by banding together and throwing a lot of money at the problem and putting together Proposition 22 or Prop 22, which has created a new way of employing people as independent contractors with a few very limited benefits. Um, And so that was approved in November 2020. And this is essentially a challenge to Prop 22.
0: Yeah, I always thought Proposition 22 was pretty scandalous, really, because it seems fairly clear that the level of control that these gig economy companies like Uber and Lyft exert over their drivers... I mean, they are employees. It just seems to be a way of not paying them healthcare and not paying them the various benefits which come with employment.
1: Yeah, it's deeply insidious and kind of proves how, especially America's legal system, can essentially be bought if you have the money and resources to throw at a legal team. But yeah, essentially kind of is a big union-busting exercise also kind of continuing this utopian dream that tech companies want to sell us that you can get everything you want purely by existing on the cloud and you don't actually need to kind of pay for people's time and labor because it's all shiny technology when actually they're just dressing up very old things such as hotels and taxis as an app.
0: Yeah, it's a good way of putting it because I do think the design does a really good job of obfuscating what's actually going on. So, Proposition 22 presenting it as oh, it's this mysterious third way of working, you're neither Uh, an employee, nor an independent contractor, but something in between. That's what the apps kind of present it as, right? They present it as somehow it's this totally new service. Whereas actually, as you say, the sort of labour abuses are all too familiar. It's the app and the sort of flexibility and the smoothness and slickness of the presentation goes a long way towards disguising the more unpleasant, unseemly aspects underneath. But so this week, right proposition 22 was struck down a judge in one of California's in California's Superior Court found that it's in violation of the state constitution
1: he has but it's not the end of the story I think now the prop 22 group is gonna come back and argue against it so it's not a case that kind of from tomorrow every single app worker is going to be classed as an employer but it's It's a positive. I think the judge found that essentially it's wrong for it to have been passed in the manner that it was passed. But it's
0: kind of interesting, I think, the way in which these things work, because... The ways in which Uber exerts control over its drivers are disguised somewhat, right? So it's presented as if it's this hugely flexible service in which drivers write their own ticket, they decide which fares they want to go take and how they operate. And that's put forward as, well, what a flexible modern way of working. How wonderful for everyone. You know, work when you want to. But actually, through the app, they are able to exert a tremendous amount of influence. I think this has changed now, but at least historically, drivers couldn't see where the fares they were picking up ended up, for instance. So for all they knew, they could end up taking a fare which took them miles out of town and then messes up the entire night, right? Because they're driving back. It makes it really difficult, potentially. And the app itself is so heavily gamified, It it really drives you to take more and more um, fares and also encourages you to work at particular times by saying it's sort of peak time, there's going to be a lot of fares, you'll be paid more. It's kind of app design has been a handmaiden to them exerting corporate control over people who their claim is they are sort of liberating and providing a greater freedom to.
1: And uh, next up, I hear, Ollie, that you have taken yourself on a rather exciting school trip out.
0: I have. I've put on the duffel coat, I've packed my sandwiches, and I've gone to central London to see Marble Arch Mound, the most reviled attraction in London. So for anyone who doesn't know what it is, the idea of Marble Arch Mound was it was going to be a man-made hill uh, bursting with life and vegetation, trees, uh, beautiful plants and flowers, close to Marble Arch in central London. And the idea was that this was going to regenerate Oxford Street and it was designed by MVRDV, the Dutch architecture practice founded by Vini Maas.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty impressive that someone has managed to build something that has been so universally hated and mocked, considering <laughs> the other ridiculous things that London has been given over the past ten years, such as the London Eye, the Millennium Dome, the that that thing out in the Olympic Park,
0: the orbital metal, yeah, the yes, slide, exactly the slide. So, it, it's been quite hard to avoid this story of the Marble Arch mound. But the the situation is, the mound did not live up to expectations. <laughs> <laughs> the the mound, it it turns out, it's actually really difficult to make a lifelike looking hill. <laughs> out of scaffolding that you've stretched what looks like AstroTurf over. I was quite excited to see it because they've basically... Originally, this was going to be a paid-for attraction. You were going to pay £4.50 to £8 to climb this mound. Even the name mound sounds bad. Like, mound... I don't know. What do you get a mound of? Like, done. It, it doesn't have positive connotations. Anyway,
1: you've got the mound cl- of Venus that's got positive Positive. Oh, that does have, that does have positive connotations. have that's a little bit excited.
0: Right. Certainly, the Marble Arch Mound does not have any of the same connections to pleasure as <laughs> the Mound of Venus. It's not, uh, it's not in the same league. But it, it's been a disaster. They've had to make it free for the month of August because it was so underwhelming. All of the trees and plants look as if they're dying, as if Oxford Street is sapping all of the life out of them. As you climb up, you can see the scaffolding through. Uh, So the stairways are just, they're just metal gantries, really. And underneath, you can see this very shoddy, put-together scaffolding structure that is meant to create the mound shape.
1: It's very interesting because we are now coming to see what all of these beautiful architectural renders we get given look like in real life, because... I mean, MVRDV are not some fly-by-night kind of architectural cowboys. They're <laughs>
0: they're big boy architects.
1: Yeah, they're big, and they have managed to to do um, some some tree-based things before. I think they had one back in the Netherlands, which was a kind of half a disco ball that had trees growing out the top of it. But trees are expensive, and I think the kind of systems you need in place to keep an entire ecosystem alive I think everyone kind of looks at a park or a forest and you're like oh that's fine like all of the trees are just growing everywhere it just seems like an explosion of life you know you're constantly trying to dig weeds out of your patio but actually when you want them to grow somewhere they're not already growing it's quite tricky and everyone wants to kind of build green walls and plant trees and actually they take a lot of work like most green walls are like actually in a constant state of entropy and then people are coming along at night and like putting new bits of moss in. So if they've just like slapped a bit of turf on top of the scaffolding, I imagine it probably is dying. I mean, did you see anyone watering it? Are there gardeners? How do you garden the mound? Are people kind of rappelling down the side of it? or No,
0: I didn't see any gardeners. I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't any. Perhaps they're all inside. Perhaps it's uh, watered internally. It's sort of self-sourcing like a pudding. I, I think you're right. I just think it, it's quite a nice idea in some ways, but it's really hard to do. And I think that shows because... This idea, MVRDV have tried to do it before. This was going to be their Serpentine Pavilion in two thousand and four. They were going to build an artificial hill over the Serpentine galleries, a, a really similar concept, and it had to be abandoned because it couldn't. It couldn't be produced. Now, famously, the Serpentine Pavilion has quite a low budget, so it's not surprising that it wasn't able to make it happen. But the mound has a colossal budget. They have stuck six million into this, into sticking up some scaffolding and trying to make this hill. And clearly even six million isn't enough to make this thing work.
1: I think six million is probably not actually that much when it comes to a project on this scale. I know it sounds insane and... It's, but part of the reason it's caused such a scandal here is that it's not private money, it's council money. So, you know, taxpayers have essentially footed at least some of the bill for this. Um, but six million, especially when construction costs are coming up, because if that's a lot of scaffolding, that's a lot of steel. And that is very expensive at the moment. So I, I can kind of imagine that like maybe costs escalated and then they had to kind of scrimp on, on the... Uh, the accoutrements, the greenery on top. I mean, it does sound like a shocking amount of money, but when you put the kind of materials and the labour and the location, yeah, I think almost perhaps they're a bit too cheap with it.
0: I think that's probably a fair assessment of it. I think you're right. However... I, I cannot stress how underwhelming it is. And when you go up, there is that quality. Of, you're right, of course construction is expensive, but that sense of disbelief that this thing costs £6 million because it, it's like walking up a fire escape and then you're at the top and it's so... It's not even a particularly good view. You see a couple of office blocks. You can look over Hyde Park, which is, is, is quite nice, I suppose. But it's, it's not a better view than you get on most of London's sort of rooftop bars. Like, it's done elsewhere. And I just... <sighs> it's that thing of I don't know whether this was ever a good idea really like if there were a natural hill there it would be lovely to have made a viewing platform and to make something exciting and Marble Arch is a weird area it's very cut off I think in the 60s they put some new roads in which kind of sliced Marble Arch off from Hyde Park to which it was originally one of the entrances so it's a tricky maroon site but Like, I kind of don't know why they ever thought this would work. Like, it doesn't seem a good idea to to create an artificial hill. You think, well, to what end? I think it should be turned into a cairn and all, everyone involved in the project should be sealed up within it as a monument to their incompetence. (laughs)
1: So continuing with our with our trees theme, and I guess also our, the problems with architecture, the news broke this month that Su Fujimoto's Thousand Trees project has been pretty much cancelled in Paris. So this was uh, one of the winning designs from a competition held in 2016 by Paris's mayor Anne Hidalgo, Uh, to find projects for initially 23 sites they whittled it down to 22 but projects for 22 sites across Paris that would be kind of sustainable and green and beautiful to revitalise the city and revegetise it ahead of the 2024 Olympics which are being held in the city and this project got planning permission back in 2019 but then environmentalists have challenged it and, uh, a court has just ruled that rather than improving pollution for people, uh, the developers originally said that this kind of big glass prow of a building topped and ringed with trees was going to be a buffer for pollution that actually kind of further study of the building has shown that it would funnel pollution from the massive ring road that it's going to be, well, it was going to be built over and, uh, concentrate these toxic fumes around nearby residential areas which was the one thing that they didn't want to happen
0: I think it's a very funny story I really like that Sufujimoto accidentally designed a building that would uh bathe an area in toxic fumes I mean it's you know it's it I think it goes to show quite how difficult it is to design environmentally because there are so many considerations you have to take in and there's this awful tendency within architecture to, you know, stick a couple of trees around a building or, in some people's cases, stick a couple of trees on buildings and say, well, look, it's very green. It's very green, isn't it? You know, those those trees are going to counteract all of the environmental costs of building this just think how much carbon dioxide they will be sucking out of the atmosphere Now, of course it doesn't work and something like this is really good to have a legal judgment on it because I think there is this tendency to utilize some of this revegetating as total greenwash and to present a development as being very environmentally friendly and very responsible and very carefully planned out whereas actually you know, it's it's a development as any other. It will have it will have a huge environmental impact. So I, I I quite enjoyed this one being struck down by the courts.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that you say you know it's obvious that it it won't work. Cause I think that is something that we're still kind of trying to get our heads around that you know it's not just a case that like growing trees captures carbon and trees absorb kind of the bad things out of the air because you have to you know speaking to landscape architects it it turns out that you need to kind of like plant the right sorts of plants in the right place because not every plant just kind of sucks up the the fumes or you know for some of them it will be bad for them or actually the way that their kind of leaves are spread out they are just going to kind of refract it back or concentrate it somewhere else and but yeah I think it's interesting because you know there's a lot made of the fact that she's a socialist mayor and she's got this kind of big plan to to plant all these trees around historic sites in Paris and they're going to revamp the Champs Elysees and put loads more trees in it but you yeah you can't just shove a bunch of trees at the problem similarly you can't just shove a lot of forests back onto the planet and magically solve climate change.
0: Yeah, no, it's much more complicated, as you point out. And I think there's this tendency to always look for an easy route out. There's within all areas in the way in which we look at engineering the climate of, oh, you know, could we could we develop sort of put little silver particles in the sky to reflect more of the sun's light away? What if we can develop technologies which suck carbon out of the sky? There's this belief always that technology will save us. And I think there's this similar tendency to think, oh, well, you know, if we just create This greener architecture. If we integrate greenery into the city, that will be fine. And it was interesting because this month the IPCC, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, put out its first report since 2013, and um, it its, its findings were pretty depressing. It forecasted five possible scenarios on based on different levels of future emissions. And all of those see us massively missing the 1.5 degrees of warming or more by 2014, which is the Paris Agreement goal. I think the worst one predicts up to 5.7 degrees of warming. And it's, it's a reminder, I think, that what we need is serious structural change. There aren't these quick fixes and small alterations we can make to business as usual, Sticking a couple of trees on it, uh, as this case would be, that are going to solve that. It, it really requires deeper thought on the part of all industries, and architecture has a big role to play in that. Construction is a massive contributor to climate change, and it's worthwhile thinking about that. And architects maybe do need to start questioning more of these big new glossy developments, because a thin bit, of, a thin bit of vegetation stuck on top isn't going to cut it. So I think one of my favourite design stories from this month, actually, was the furore around OnlyFans, the content subscription platform that kind of made its name off the back of sex workers, really. They suddenly announced earlier this month that they were going to ban users from posting sexually explicit content and they said at the request of its banking partners and payout providers. Now, this provoked a scandal because essentially this is a company which pre-pandemic, I think, had 120,000 creators. After the pandemic, they had 1 million creators and 90 million users. And that growth was kind of driven by people, by sex workers, by people producing uh, adult content, pornography on there. And there was this feeling that OnlyFans had sort of use these people's labour and use these people to drive its own growth and then we're suddenly cutting them loose
1: yeah it was uh, very disappointing we had to cancel the disegno nude calendar a lot of effort had gone into that
0: well we have until december (laughs) so you know my cam shows will continue until further notice
1: this one was interesting because everyone was very quick to kind of be like oh those bastards they like took everyone and now they want to clean up their act and like pretend that they're a serious company but actually to give them credit they did go into the go to the financial times and sit down with them and say like this is not because we don't want to host porn this is because our banking partners have these kind of morality clauses that essentially mean that they won't do business with us if we are making money from the textual entertainment industry, which raises all these kind of other interesting questions about money and tech, because OnlyFans is based in the UK, but for companies in the US particularly, there's a lot of these kind of like, pretty like old puritanical laws about, uh, about not being able to kind of take money from industries that essentially are regarded as sinful.
0: And not purely old laws, they also are passing new laws. So Trump passed Foster, which is the, uh, let me find its exact title, is the uh, Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. And basically what it does is remove Section 230, uh, of the Communication Decency Act, which, which protects platforms publishing uh, user-generated content from being sued, it removes that protection to anything that promotes or facilitates prostitution. Now, it said that's to prevent sex trafficking, but obviously, how do people interpret that? In a country that can be very uh, puritanical at times, you know, a lot of sex work can be deemed as promoting or facil- or facilitating prostitution, so it's it's being squeezed by new laws as well as old ones.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. You make a very good point. And whenever kind of trafficking gets brought up, you know that you've basically got a kind of moral panic narrative on your on your hands. And it's also, I think, uh, why a lot of kind of sex tech struggles to get funded, especially a lot of like women in the tech sector. Um, struggle to find investors because no one really wants to invest in something that has those um, connotations and really what kind of sex workers want is like a safe uh, comfortable space that works for them to be able to to kind of keep working
0: exactly sex work yes we know there have been historically a huge number of ethical problems in that um, industry a lot of the time production companies exploiting performers and people who the people who work in that industry being unsafe and not having a choice of who they work with with how they're working not really receiving the profits from it so something like OnlyFans i think on the whole was a very positive development because it gave those performers much greater control of their earnings and also much greater control and curation of their own material. It was a lot safer. And you know, also there's just this hypocrisy to to be pointing out ethical problems in in that world. What the banking industry is pointing out ethical problems, bankers have ethical problems with working with these people. Like my God, the brass neck on some of them. <laughs>
1: Yeah, although I was I was surprised um to see kind of such an uprising against Sony fans because I thought it had already kind of become not unusable for sex workers, but it had uh, kind of suffered already from a pretty fast cycle of gentrification. There was the issue where former Disney Channel star Bella Thorne had set up her own account and charged people $20 a month for her nudes that were actually just pictures of her eating a hot dog in a bikini and um so many people subscribed and then demanded a refund when she didn't actually do kind of full frontal nudity that only fans um said it was kind of forced to change its payment method so previously it paid everyone every seven days and then it went to a more traditional model of people only getting their you know their profits every 30 days which is kind of takes away from the platform's usability so yeah i think it this is not the first time that the system has um Had a few hiccups, shall we say.
0: Now, just before we came to record, we should say that OnlyFans reversed that decision and they said that they're not going to ban sexually explicit content. They said uh, the proposed October 1st, 2021 changes are no longer required due to banking partners' assurances that OnlyFans can support all genres of creators. But I think there is still a discussion to be had here, and to an extent it is a design discussion a little bit of how can we create platforms that are safer for sex workers that provide them with more choice more control and which aren't going to put people in um you know economic danger doesn't that does everything it can to make people's situations, not precarious, and which just provides basic safety and security. Now, I'm not saying that OnlyFans is perfect, but I think it and its ilk are certainly an improvement upon some of the modes by which pornography has been distributed in the past. So there are discussions to be had upon how do you design platforms like this? What is a safer way ahead? And yeah, if OnlyFans have had these issues with banking partners in the past, what can be done about that? What ways are there to destigmatize this kind of work? Because it's going to happen, like regardless of what you think about it, it goes on. So it is about making it as uh, as as safe as possible. So different news. This is a story from Ghana, which was the announcement that Ajay Associates, the firm of David Ajay, has created a blueprint for more than 100 new hospitals as part of Ghana's Agenda 111 scheme, which is a plan to build 101 new hospitals across the country. On the surface, this is very good news because Ghana is desperately in need of more hospitals and particularly it needs a much greater spread of hospitals so because at the moment it's very unequal the way in which these facilities are spread over the country so in the greater Accra region for instance which includes the country's capital there's one doctor per 3,000 people whereas if you go to the upper east region which is one of Ghana's poorer regions that has one doctor to 26,000 people so the facilities that are already there Need bolstering as 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 frankly most countries' <laughs> hospital facilities need bolstering, but Ghana also has this issue that they're not well spread out at the moment. So a, a serious scheme to create greater hospitals across the whole of the country is much needed.
1: And uh, David Ajay is a is a big player on the global architecture front. Um, he you know just won the Reba Gold Medal uh, for him to attach himself to a project lends itself a kind of necessary gravitas and uh they seem very very serious about the design it's um going to be modular prefabricated um yeah it looks gorgeous the idea is that uh you know you i assume it will be a kit of parts that can be adapted to each one of these 101 locations because some of them will be rural especially kind of rural areas are suffering from a lack of um Access to medical care, but they're also going to be put in urban environments. But the basic um, template is to have kind of a planted courtyard garden in the center, uh, kind of wayfinding devices built into the kind of the fabric of the hospital, and then two different types of roofs. So for kind of areas where they can make use of um, natural ventilation. Uh, Bruce will be shaped like big butterfly wings. I'm making gestures with my hands that you can't see because this is not a visual medium.
0: Listener, the hands are describing it perfectly.
1: <laughs> they will lift up um, from a kind of central spine and create uh, spaces for kind of air and light to move through the ward. So this very kind of uh, progressive, biophilic, low in carbon intensity uh, idea. And then a more kind of traditional like gabled style roof for surgical areas which you can't have anything else but kind of a clean air system.
0: Yeah I was gonna say given we've talked about the need for sustainability something like this is is a terrific idea.
1: Yeah this is a a serious well-thought-out project the kind of Questions come in. <laughs> there's a
0: there's a but coming. There
1: is, unfortunately, a but. Where so they've cut ground on the first they've cut ground on the first site, and the president of Ghana has pledged to build 88 of these hospitals in 18 months.
0: I mean that's a brutal schedule. <laughs> that would be a brutal schedule anywhere. I mean China has shown in the past you can throw up hospitals very quickly as it did in the early stages of the pandemic, but that is remarkable. And also Ghana's economy is not in a good state. The ratio of debt to gross domestic product, it it now tops 70% last year. So to undertake a major project like this, and each hospital is going to cost an estimated $16.8 million. So, you know, these are not, you know, that's not a, a, a colossal budget, but nor is it small change to be able to produce 88 of these things in 18 months, I think questions will be asked and, and actually are being asked within Ghana.
1: Yeah, that's uh, three mounds <laughs> in mound economics. And Ghana, the kind of political situation there is quite tempestuous. There were arguments over this president's last election. The opposition uh, has definitely latched onto this as kind of a key issue. The government has looks like it's perhaps being a bit evasive about where the investment money is going kind of how much of it has been raised how much of it has already been spent because they've bought quite a few of these sites so um yeah the the opposition party is doing a lot of kind of noise making and in return the majority party is kind of saying that you know well you don't believe in ghana you don't believe in this like glorious infrastructure project and you know they have been promising since the start of the pandemic to build more healthcare facilities and ajay is also involved in another project in ghana building the national cathedral in Accra, which is again another amazing looking project that has definitely been well thought out but i'm I've as far as I can tell, I'm not sure it's broken ground or construction is really not that far along. But again, both of these projects have kind of set a uh, suspiciously convenient completion date of 2024, which is the next election in Ghana. So again, kind of similar to Paris, we've got leaders wanting to build these kind of big flagship projects ahead of events that obviously are going to gain them quite a lot of clout if they manage to pull it off.
0: It's such a tricky one to assess, and particularly to assess from afar, because, I mean, let's face it, neither of us are experts on Ghanaian economics. Like, it's very tricky to say. And, but from looking in, it's it's kind of that situation where it's a necessary project. These hospitals are needed. It's It, it seems a strong project. It seems like it's been put together well. It's just whether it's viable. And, I mean... I don't want to be negative but looking at the information which is available it's I don't want to it's unviable but it's certainly ambitious as hell and as you say the completion date is rather convenient so I mean I guess we'll we have to wait and see let's hope it's a huge success because it's something that the country really needs but you you wouldn't be surprised if it if it hits roadblocks upon the way. So on to our projects and products section, where we're just going to give you a quick overview of some recent launches. Traditionally August slow for this type of thing. But actually, we've seen quite a lot this month. Uh, The first thing I want to flag up is a new furniture collection from Goldfinger. Uh, Goldfinger is a social enterprise that's based in the base of Erno Goldfinger's Trellick Tower in London. Um, They produce furniture, homeware and fittings from reclaimed and sustainable materials. And also very active in their local communities, so they run a free monthly meal program called the People's Kitchen. But this is the first time they've designed their own uh, furniture range, which is the Ayrton collection.
1: It looks pretty gorgeous, I have to say. Yeah, all made out of reclaimed materials, which adds to adds to the feel good factor.
0: Yeah, it's a really sweet story. So all of these pieces are made from teak and fur, and the wood has been sourced from old desks, reclaimed teak donated by. By imperial college london they're the desks from the department of electrical engineering so they've got a nice story behind them and then i think the douglas fir is sourced from trees fell to make way for urban development so it's just quite sweet and it's really nice to see a social enterprise doing well and sort of spreading its wings and trying some new things and i think after they've done this one-off Uh, collection Uh, sorry this one-off edition because imperial college doesn't have an infinite supply of old benches to send through they're then going to do a production version which i think similarly will be sort of sustainable materials but sadly not old desks but it's very nice so i recommend people take a look at it
1: yeah, so from lovely social enterprise, reclaimed desks to something a little bit bigger and a little bit more bling. August is the month where the founder of Louis Vuitton would have turned 200 years old, and to celebrate, Louis Vuitton went pretty big and invited 200 designers to reinvent their uh the trunk so this is the kind of iconic steamer trunk you know your big matching branded suitcases (laughs)
0: it's just too many 200 is too many too many
1: trunks
0: to have yeah you can go on their website and see all 200 versions of what people have put forward And and some are are really lovely. Nick Ross, the designer, has done a sort of um, cast uh, polyurethane little torch. Don't don't quite know how it relates to Louis Vuitton, but it's very nice. Peter Marino has made a bondage trunk because, like, of course Peter Marino was going to make a bondage trunk. Samuel Ross, the designer behind The Cold wall, has done quite a nice sort of metal abstraction of the trunk. So these orange bars which kind of trace its shape, but which, are, which don't form a filled-in version.
1: Yeah, some of them have gone pretty abstract. I think my favourite is Willow Perron, who's the set designer who does Rihanna's um, underwear. Shows he's done this kind of fantastic mirrored box that's got this mechanism inside it that kind of like explodes it out and I don't think you can actually keep anything in it but it looks really cool and you know they're they're trying to be uh, to give back as well um, and Louis Vuitton has said that they'll give ten thousand euros for each trunk to uh, some kind of 15 charities and non-profit organizations that they've they've picked out. I don't think the money from the trunks themselves is going to charity but yeah no i think it'll be interesting to see also like where they end up
0: it sounds like one of those things where they went well it's our 200th anniversary and a member of the team went yeah but you know we won't we won't do 200 will we that would be madness (laughs) no one needs 200 and then gradually they just talked themselves up into it like it's great that all of that money is going to go to these organizations fantastic but at the same time i wonder if When you go this big, it starts to cheapen the project a little bit. Just looking on the website, you get lost really easily and you're so swamped. And some of them provide very clear explanations of what they are. Others don't. Maybe doing a few less and doing a tighter edit and still have just donating the overall sum to charity might have been better. But I guess it's exciting to have so many to look through. The next thing I want to talk about is a new tech launch. Uh, This is the launch of a new brand called Nothing. It's been founded by the OnePlus co-founder, Carl Pei, and they have put out a new line of earbuds, clearly designed to compete with Apple's AirPods, uh, the difference is that these feature audio by Teenage Engineering, the very celebrated Swedish uh, design student who's done a lot of work in audio. And their head of design is Tom Howard, who's also vice head of design at Teenage. Their first product is the Ear One wireless earpods. And I, I actually have some here, which I'm looking at. And they're kind of interesting, because the big thing around nothing is that they say they want to make... Consumer electronics, they think, look very samey. They think earpods look very Apple. And so they've said they want to create a new era of sort of transparency. And to sort of symbolise that, they've used a lot of transparent plastic on these. So the stem is a clear plastic, and then you can look through and see some of the interior workings.
1: Yeah, I love this because I do think we've reached a stage where, yeah, you've got the kind of Apple hegemony and everything else is trying to look kind of like sleek and nondescript in response. I didn't think I'd ever get onto the wireless headphones bandwagon, but I have and and now it is hard to to look back. (laughs)
0: It's a bold new future. Now, these these one of their big things, and it's probably something we don't talk about—a nothing design, actually. These cost ninety nine dollars, which, if you compare them to Apple's, which are a couple of hundred, so there is a big price difference. I think they're an interesting start and a positive start. It's kind of disappointing in a way because initially, teenage put out some concept drawings of. Concept earbuds they'd done, which they said won't ever be released as a product, but maybe will give you an idea of where we're going with nothing. And those were much more radically transparent, the whole body was transparent, whereas in the actual production ones, when you get to the earpiece itself, that is white plastic. Now, if you're trying to get away from looking like you're having a very Apple aesthetic, I would suggest white plastic is the thing to steer clear of. That is the Apple material. But they're, they're an encouraging start. And I think teenagers so good at the audio equipment they do. And I think have a really lovely, slightly retro aesthetic. Like I think these look quite early 2000s. So I'm keen to see where they go with them, definitely. And if you can produce a more affordable, more mass market wireless earbud that works, I mean, that would be welcome. Apple stuff is expensive. It always has been. We know that. It wouldn't be a bad thing for them to have a competitor.
1: This launch has double connotations. It's got a space theme, but also it's a—it's always a surprise when Elon Musk manages to bring something to market that doesn't turn out to be a <laughs> gigantic joke. A SpaceX's satellite internet connection company Starlink has actually shipped apparently 100,000 terminals to customers. So this is the kind of the the latest Musk project to launch satellites into space. He's pissed off a lot of astronomers because he's cluttering up the sky. But you know, it's, it's actually a pretty decent project to try and bring uh, internet to people and i you know i think that is very important because we live in such a digital world that not having internet connection does hold you back and uh, they do actually look pretty cool they look kind of like a like a star trek ship It's kind of this big flat disc with a little tripod stand
0: yeah they're very star trek enterprise can i say that I hate this story. I didn't know about Starlink until you brought it up when we were planning this episode. Like it had passed me by and I really dislike it. Like you said, I think it's a great initiative because satellite internet has the potential to connect areas of the world which don't have internet. So it's really important. It's a really good aim. I just wish Elon Musk wasn't doing it. (laughs) Elon Musk is everything that's wrong with the world. And for Elon Musk to now be making inroads into the internet and beginning to control the internet is just the most depressing news. I was so much happier when I didn't know about Starlink
1: yeah and it was one of those ones where i was i was like oh wow something elon has done that's actually good because his last story was about how he wants to build a hyperloop under florida which is basically it falling into the sea so like a really poor idea to like build tunnels um as a transport method that (laughs) are definitely gonna get flooded
0: my new business plan involves undermining florida
1: (laughs) and then this came out and i was like oh actually maybe he's doing some good things but then never fear a few weeks ago he promised that they were going to start building Elon Musk robots. Our
0: final project this week, and we've we've complained a lot this week. We've complained about capitalism, we've said any number of installations are terrible. We've got something really nice to end on and something that I think is very positive, which is Sonic Bloom, a new installation by the sound artist and designer Yori Suzuki. It's a public sculpture which has been installed in Brownheart Gardens in London's Mayfair. And it's really, really nice. And I actually went to visit it yesterday. So India, have you seen what it looks like?
1: I have. And I think it looks gorgeous. It reminds me of those rail bead toys that you'd get in a doctor's office, this kind of beautiful tangle of primary colours. And then these kind of trumpets that look like Disney flowers kind of blooming. But they also remind me of old... um, gramophones or kind of ear trumpets very playful reminds me of those kind of childhood experiments where you tie two tin cans together with a bit of string and you can kind of communicate but does it actually work this is what i'm curious about because it looks fantastic but can you actually speak into one end and be heard at the other
0: It does, exactly. So it's these connecting pipes with these ear trumpets. You speak into one and it comes out the other. I tried it out and it works perfectly. You can hear people pretty clearly. And it's quite an eerie experience in a way because it's so inviting. And the installation, when you see it in these lovely primary colours, it looks loud. It looks engaging. It looks like it's going to be noisy and chaotic, which is exactly what you want. He was commissioned by Alter Projects to create something which could help build community in the area. So let's Loud is good for that. It draws people in, and kids particularly, I think. But then when you actually use it, it's quite an intimate experience because you have to put your ear quite close. And then you have this private communication coming from someone. So it's a sort of tangle of whispering galleries. And it's this really nice mixture between visually very loud, but then the soundscape is quite intimate and uh, private and there's this lovely sense of connection and I, I think particularly they've talked a little bit about how nice that is after this period of isolation through Covid to have something which maybe encourages people to get together and speak I think it's a really impressive piece of work actually and I should say everyone here on The Crip are big fans of Yori for anyone who doesn't know Yori actually did our jingle uh, and created all of that which we love. But
1: we're not biased <laughs>
0: Yeah, this isn't payment in kind. <laughs> but he's um he's an interesting practitioner because so much is said about the amazing things he does with sound and how he's really pioneered this particular form of sound design. But I think he has a I think he has a very well-developed visual sense as well. Like you mentioned the, the trumpets and how nice they are. And that's a form he uses in so much of his work. It's in the welcome chorus he did at Margate Turner Contemporary. Sonic Playground at the High Museum of Art, Silent City at India. And it's just this really lovely way of visualising sound. I think he's, he's much more visually sophisticated than he sometimes gets credit for, because everyone focuses on the sound aspect. But he's just a very impressive designer. And this installation is free, so there's no excuse. If you're in London, do go and see it, try it out, you'll have a lovely time.
1: More fun than the mound.
0: They're quite a nice double header because Yoris is very accomplished and shows what you can do and think thoughtfully and make engaging public art. And then, I mean, the mound is just a masterpiece in crapness. <laughs> Well, I think that's all we have time for this week. India, thanks for thanks for joining the crit. I, I hope it was a positive first experience.
1: I mean, I had a great time. I feel like I bought a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of negativity, but. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I love a new chance to slag off capitalism into a microphone so thank you for giving me this uh, this fresh Avenue.
0: <laughs> happy to happy to provide the platform for it. We will be back next month. In the meantime you can stay in touch. We're on at the crit podcast on Instagram and at the crit design on Twitter or if you'd like to you can email us on the crit at deceniojournal.com you
1: The Crit has been hosted by Ollie Stratford and me, India Block. It's been produced and edited by Evie Hall. And our music is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram.